0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. <sighs> Um, I haven't been up here in five weeks, so you can see I'm ready to go already to (laughs) preach. They have given me the announcements today. They have given me the the, uh, prayer today, and now I I get to be up on the platform after five weeks of not being here. I want to say thank you for giving me that time off. It was a very valuable time because it helps me to evaluate where we are in our ministries, where I am, what are the areas we need to make adjustments in, and what are some areas I need to create more margin in my life to be able to accomplish that. Those five weeks have given me the opportunity to do that. And those five weeks have given you the opportunity to hear from some of our other pastors who have done an incredible job. Yes, would you just demonstrate your appreciation to all of our pastors that preached? And they did a wonderful, wonderful job as we have been working together. Let me ask you a question. Um, Have you ever been in a situation in your life where your own self-righteousness elevated itself to the point where you shamed someone else to make yourself look good. Anybody ever been there? Am I the only unspiritual person in this room? <laughs> so, No, the, the problem is this. We all have a tendency to have to deal with moments in our lives where our own fleshly self-righteousness rises up and we want to look better than we are. And then there are times when that self-righteousness demonstrates itself into pure hip- hypocrisy. And we're anything but what we claim to be. Etched in my mind is a memory of something that happened to me almost 30 years ago. And I believe the Holy Spirit keeps it etched there to humble me and to show me the serious nature of our own hypocrisy and how our hypocrisy can undermine the teaching and the reality of the gospel. I had taken a group of students from this church to a ski retreat. And we went off to Beckley, West Virginia at Winter Place. Now, if you are a student pastor and you take students skiing, you begin to realize how gracious and kind God is in his mercy that you have not brought one back dead or maimed because that is always a dangerous thing. But we go on this ski retreat and everything's going great. We're having a wonderful time. We're singing praises to Jesus at night. We're skiing in the day. We're having great fellowship. But I was getting aggravated because of something that took place. Now, when you go skiing and you don't have ski equipment, you have to rent them. So you go to the ski rental place, and they give you boots, they give you skis, they give you a pole, then they give you this little slip of paper And on that slip of paper are some very important numbers. They're the numbers that coincide with the numbers that are conspicuously written on your skis. And you have to remember those numbers on your skis and make sure they match your receipt. Because when you go to the lodge or take a bathroom break, you take your skis off and you place them on a rack with hundreds of other skis. And you have to make sure you grab your own skis. Two times on this trip, somebody took my skis. And I came out of the lodge, couldn't find my skis, looked for a half hour, then had to go to the rental shop. And which is a frustrating thing because you show them your slip of paper, somebody's got your skis, they give you new skis, they have to readjust the bindings to fit you because of your height and your weight and you lose about an hour, an hour and a half. I was frustrated, it happened to me twice. So the third time I go to the lodge, I set my skis down. I know exactly where I put them. I go to get me a hot cup of coffee. I come back and I'm watching. And this kid, probably a sophomore in high school, walks up, grabs my skis, and starts walking off. Well, in the character of Christ, I said, hey, stop. (laughs) Those are my skis. Stop right there. Don't you take another step, young man. And he just froze, his cheeks were rosy color, just looking at me, I walked up to him and I grabbed him right out of his hand. I said, I want you to know something, this is the third time this week that has happened. And do you have any idea of how much work you have to do to go to that rental shop and clear it up and get a new pair of skis? I wish you young people would just pay attention. He's looking at me with fright I'm thinking, good, the fear of God needs to be in this young man. And when I grabbed the skis, I said, pay attention next time. I start to walk off, and this quivering voice, he says, "Uh, sir? And I turn around, I said, what? He said, at the ski lodge, they give you this sheet of paper with your number on it. And if you would look carefully, the numbers on those skis coincide with the numbers on my slip of paper. And I looked at it, and I grabbed a sheet, and my heart just sank. It's one of those Jesus darts that hit you right there. And I looked at him and I said, it says on your slip of paper that your name is Mike. He said, yes, sir. I said, Mike, I am terribly sorry. I owe you an apology. I said, these are indeed your skis. And I took your skis. And I said, I'm going to tell you something else, Mike. I said, I'm a student pastor. And I have not acted at all in the character of Jesus Christ but you, on the other hand, have. I said, will you forgive me? And he just smiled at me. He says, I most certainly do forgive you. Then he said this, may I help you find your skis? (laughs) Another Jesus dart. (laughs) I'm like, Holy Spirit, that's enough. That's enough, I got it. And I said, no, young man, thank you for it, but here are your skis, go enjoy your day. I have my slip of paper and I will find my skis. I start to turn and he walks over there. And he's standing next to a buddy of his and his buddy's saying, what, what, what was that jerk telling you? And he looked at him and said, oh man, we're cool. Just a misunderstanding. He turned and smiled at me. I was like, oh, there's another one. He's just killing me here. And I walked away from that, never forgetting that moment. And the reason I never forgot that moment is because of my self-righteousness misrepresented who I really am and undermined completely the work of the gospel. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we continue in our study this morning on the Sermon on the Mount, we're in chapter six. So if you have your Bibles and you have your devices, turn to Matthew chapter six. We're gonna begin in verse one. But before we get set there, I just want to remind you of where we've been. When we started the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus goes to the Beatitudes and he gives us a description of what the Christian life is. Not a prescription, but a description of the Christian life. And then we moved into um, cha- um, chapter 5, verses 13 uh, um, through 16. We saw that Jesus wants us to be influence in the world, salt and light, and let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And then the rest of the chapter, he talks about righteousness. He is talking about a moral righteousness that derives itself from the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't lust, do not murder, don't hate, do not lie. Keep the truth, say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he's talking about all the moral aspects. When we get to chapter 6, he's dealing with righteousness again, but a different kind of righteousness. Where in chapter 5, is dealing with the moral righteousness that derives itself from the moral code of the law. In chapter 6, he begins to deal with the religious righteousness of how our Christianity is to be lived out in our lives. Now, before I go any further, we need to understand what righteousness is in the Christian life. And when we deal with righteousness, we're really dealing with two kinds of righteousness. And this is very, very important for us to get. The first kind of righteousness that we face is positional righteousness. That's the righteousness that we have in Christ. It's not a righteousness of my own. It's not a righteousness that derived from my good works. It's not a righteousness that I have earned. It is a righteousness that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. When I surrender my life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is an exchange. He takes my unrighteousness and he imputes to me a righteousness that's not mine. It's a positional righteousness. It's a righteousness that where God counts me right in Christ. Apart from Christ, I will never, ever be righteous. But in a relationship with Jesus, God sees me positionally as righteous, and it never changed. Let me tell you, that's good news. If you're not a believer here today, that's good news for you. Because that says you can never earn righteousness to please God. Your positional righteousness before God can only be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and only as you surrender your life to him are you positionally right before him. And every believer stands in that positional righteousness. But there's a second kind of righteousness. It's a practical righteousness. The practical righteousness is the outworking of the positional righteousness in us. It is the outworking of how God has transformed my life. So therefore, when I live in practical righteousness, I'm taking the transformation that I have experienced in Jesus, and then what am I doing? I'm trying to live that out and flesh it out in my life so people see the change and the transformation that has come only through Christ. Now, here's the difficult thing. The difficult thing when we're trying to live this practical righteousness, our flesh gets in the way, doesn't it? Our flesh gets in the way. And that's why Jesus in chapter 6, verse 1, begins with a warning. He's saying, yes, you are to live this religious righteousness in your life, but he gives us a warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Beware, what's he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Jesus understands the propensity of your heart and my heart. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and they will deceive us and lie to us. And because of that, there are many times in our lives that we live differently than what we say we believe. In other words, we can be hypocrites. And you know that the number one complaint every year without end The number one complaint of people who don't go to church and people who don't are interested in Christianity is the same thing. They don't come to church and they don't want to be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. Hypocrites. They got a great argument there. Now, a lot of times it's a smokescreen, but it is a good argument because let's face the fact, every one of us in this room, without exception, can be a hypocrite. I know that I've lived that way. I remember one time when Leslie, my daughter Leslie, was a little girl. I was teaching Ryan and Leslie about some things that are appropriate in our family and not. And one of the things that was not appropriate in our family was you were never to go to the refrigerator, take the jug of milk, and drink out of it. You were always to put it in a cup. Never drink out of the jug of milk. And so at the same time, I was teaching Leslie about hypocrisy. And she loved the word hypocrisy. She kept saying hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And so I told her what it meant. One morning I get up, I go to there and I'm thinking, oh, I don't feel like walking to the cabinet. I grab the milk, I'm doing that. And she is standing right behind me. I turn around, she goes, hypocrisy. <laughs> Just like that. And she was so true and so right. Let me tell you the struggle of where we are as Christians. Positionally righteous, not very practical in our righteousness sometimes. We're positionally right before God, but we struggle with this area of self righteousness and hypocrisy. John Newton put it this way the man who wrote Amazing Grace, I love the way he said it. He says, I am simultaneously a sinner and a saint. That's what we are. We're simultaneously sinners because of our fallen nature, but we're simultaneously saints because of the position that we have in Christ Jesus. Theologians put it another way, already, but not yet. We're living in the already, but not yet. I'm already a child of God, but I do not yet fully understand what it is. I'm already positionally righteous before God, but I'm not yet perfect. And so what happens for believers is we live in a world of the already and not yet, and there's always this battle, this propensity For us to be hypocrites again if you're not a believer this is a great place for you to be here's why there's no perfect people in this room every one of us without exception we're jacked up in some way we've got brokenness in some way we've got struggles in our lives in some way yeah we're positionally right in christ because of our relationship with him but in our flesh we tend to fall and stumble and you are in great company And we invite you to join us. And here's the wonderful thing that we recognize. That whenever we understand that and we're honest with that, we don't have to try to work ourselves to be something that we are not because all of that dissipates in the presence of the cross. Because it's what he has done and not what we do. So Jesus gives us this warning in chapter 6. He gives it to us because every one of us in this room has the propensity to be a hypocrite. So what does he tell us? He tells us there are three kinds of religious righteousness that should be present in our lives. That's where he begins. Here he gives us the first one in verses 1 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here is the first um, um, religious righteousness we should pursue in our life. Number one, my religious righteousness should display a generous heart. Jesus is saying that if you're a follower of mine, you should have a generous heart Notice how he puts it two times in the passage. He says, thus, when you give to the needy. And then he says again, but when you give to the needy. Jesus assumes that his followers are going to be generous. He doesn't say you should give to the needy or if you give to the needy. But he says, when you practice generosity. Generosity is to be a hallmark of our lives. We should be the most generous people on the planet. Because of what God has given to us. Think about the generosity of the Father. He has given us life. You think about the generosity of the Son. He has given us his life. You think about the generosity of the Holy Spirit. He has given us a new life. And all through the scriptures we find the exhortation to give to those who are in need. So, this first act of religious righteousness in your life and my life should be that we're generous people and we gen- genuinely want to help those who are in need. That's the first religious righteousness. But then he gives us a second one. Let's look at the second one. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then he goes on. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. What is the second action of religious righteousness? Here's what Jesus says. My religious righteousness should display a genuine prayer life. Not only should I be generous, but I should have a genuine prayer life. We see all through the Bible, 66 books. Every single book of the Bible contains prayers to God. And we see that the Lord Jesus regularly pulled himself away to pray to his father and that we see all through the, the, the epistles, the ex- exhortation for us to pray. No serious believer would ever question the need for prayer. So we are to be generous people. We are to be praying people. Here's the third religious righteousness that he gives. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's a third one. The third one is, my religious righteousness should display a growing hunger for God. That's what fasting is. He says it two times in there. And when you fast, verse 16, again, and when you fast, verse 17. Fasting was the giving up of water and food or some sustenance of the body to pursue a hunger for God. That's what fasting is. Now, here's what he says these are the three acts of religious righteousness that should be in our lives. We should be generous in our giving. We should be genuine in our prayer life. We should be fasting to pursue God. Of the three things, fasting is the one that we're not real good with. But in the midst of all these, he incorporates all things. You see, whenever I am generous, I'm helping others. Whenever I'm pursuing prayer, it's my relationship with God. I'm honoring God. And whenever I'm fasting, I'm asking God to change me. So it includes all of those. Now, Jesus gives these almost in just passing. Why? Because every good Jew knew that's what you should do. And that should be the hallmark of every believer. That as we're following Christ, we should be generous in our heart. We should be the kind of people that are praying regularly and fasting and pursuing a hunger for God. But here's his point. In the midst of all of it, don't Be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Now, what is a hypocrite? The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word, which means a play actor. It comes from a theatrical scene. It comes from the performing arts. And that day when people um, um, acted, they actually literally put a mask on to pretend that they were someone else. And that's where it comes from. And the word hypocrite means play acting. It means to pretend you're someone you're not. And what Jesus is coming to with us here is challenging our lives when it comes to generosity, when it comes to prayer, and when it comes to fasting. And he wants to make sure that we're not hypocrites, we're not pretending that we're something that we're not in these areas. And the first charge he gives us, he says, don't be hypocritical in your generosity, Whenever you're giving, do not be a hypocrite. Then he gives the p- beautiful picture of it of Pharisees. He says this, this when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. The Pharisees were used to hiring a little band. And before they did some generous act, the band would play, the trumpets would blow, and everybody's attention was on the Pharisees. Why was it hypocritical? They cared nothing about the needy. They used the needy to build up their own spiritual platform. And they were hypocrites. They cared nothing about the hurting people around them. They only cared about what they would look like when they help hurting people. And it was very hypocritical. And then he says, truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, you and I might say we would never be like those hypocrites. I'd never hire a band before I do some generous act. But isn't it true that a lot of times we like to toot our own horns? That phrase comes exactly from this passage. A lot of times what we do that demonstrates hypocrisy in our generosity is a lot of times we make it more about ourselves than we make it about needy people. Now, we might not go on the corner of Market Street and Walmart right there where where a homeless person stands, and you might not pull out on a weekday and pull up next to the homeless person, turn your radio to K-Love as loud as you can get, let it be playing some religious song, jump outside, give the guy a care package, pray over him in public where everybody else is tooting their own horns. You wouldn't do that. None of us would do that. But let me tell you what we would do. We might subtly stop, give the guy a care package. And then when we drive off, we go to a small group and we find some way of inserting our generosity in that group study and how good we were to minister to that homeless person. Or how about this? You might not even do that, but you might stop and give that homeless person something. And as you're driving away, you're looking in your rearview mirror of all the people who didn't help like you did. And what do you do? You elevate yourself. Or you might go on a mission trip, not really caring about the hurting people in those foreign countries, but what that would look like on your resume and your actions and your activities. And Jesus is saying, check your heart. You see, because even in all of that, You need to be careful when he says don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing There's no way you and I can do anything without knowing that we did it And he's not saying don't keep a good record of things and be a good stewardship He's like this what he's saying is this don't toot your own harm about yourself to yourself Whenever you serve me So he's telling be careful Don't be a hypocrite in your generosity And don't let your hypocritical thinking rob you of something that will give glory to God. Then he goes to the next one. He says, don't be hypocritical in your prayer life. Oh, I like this one. Again, he uses the illustration of the Pharisees. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners. The Pharisees were known for having the best seats in the synagogue and they would have the longest prayers and the loudest prayers. The Pharisees also prayed three times a day. And what they would do is they would time their walk just right so at the time of prayer, they were at the busiest street corner where everyone was, and they would pray so everybody would see how religious and spiritual they were. Again, they cared nothing about their relationship with God. None of their prayers were Godward. All of their prayers were about building themselves up and making themselves look good. And then he says, don't pray like the heathen's. He says that whenever, go to the next verse, seven and eight, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Here's the thing, here's a question. Two diagnostic questions I wanna give to you when it comes to your prayer life. And how can you tell whether you're praying with hypocrisy? Here's the first question. Is the only time you pray is when others ask you to pray publicly. It's the only time you pray is when others ask you to pray publicly. If you're not praying privately and somebody in a small group calls you to pray and you have not been praying and not in a communion with God, but you're gonna pray because you don't want other people to think you're unspiritual. It is rare that I've ever had somebody say, Pastor, I I can't pray, don't call on me. I'm just not at a place right now for that. What do most people do? I'm gonna pretend I'm something I'm not. I'm gonna pretend I have this deep prayer life with God and I'm gonna pray this beautiful prayer so no one would suspect that I'm anemic in my communion with God. Or here's a second one. Do you try to manipulate God with your many words and phrases and repetitions so he will agree with your desire or your goals? Do you keep adding, adding words? Do you keep trying to convince God? Do you feel like I've got to educate you, God? I've got to inform you, God. God, you've got to see my point of view. And God is from heaven like, oh, oh, you're right. I never thought of that before. Yes, you can have that. No. Hypocrisy is when I am trying to use prayer for my good rather than my relationship with God. It's when I'm trying to convince him of something. And if I can say the right words, if I get the right posture, if if I do it long enough, then maybe I'll win the fight. And it becomes very hypocritical, doesn't it? You know, it's really, really interesting. We love to talk about the Lord's prayer. It is in this context that Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer. It's in this context of hypocrisy. Here's what he says in verse nine. He says, pray then like this. Don't do these things. You pray like this. And here's the prayer he gives us. We're not gonna break it down. We don't have enough time. But he begins with praise. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father is personal. Heaven, he is the king and omnipotent. Hallowed, he is perfect. Perfect. It's all Godward. Then the second part continues with priorities. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His rule, his reign, his right. And then thirdly, move to provisions. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and it closes with protection and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice how short it is, 66 words. Not long, not drawn out, but it is undeniably, unquestionably god word. It's all about him. Your name, your rule, your reign, your rights over me, my absolute dependence on you for daily provisions And my need for you to protect me. That is what Jesus is teaching. And in the context of hypocrisy, he's trying to get our mind wrapped around the reality that our prayers need to be God-word and not me-word. And then when I come to understand that, what I understand is what he is doing is teaching me how to go deeper with him. I've heard some people pray really, really wordy prayers, long drawn out prayers. And my thought is they need to cut that prayer off at both ends and set it on fire in the middle. That's what needs to happen because it needs to be about him. Now, does that mean we don't call out to God? We don't have long times of prayer? No, we do, but it's always Godward, And prayer is always this. It's not me trying to get God into my way of thinking. It's me praying so God gets me into his way of thinking. Because when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but what? Your will. Your will. And Jesus is saying, listen, in your giving, don't be hypocritical. Don't toot your horn. In, in, in your prayer life, it's not about you. It's about me. Connect with me. And when you know my heart, you will know my ways. And you will know my will. And you will know my desires. But here's the third thing he says. Don't be hypocritical in your growing hunger for God. I like this one. I've already said it's about fasting. And here's the thing. We don't really understand fasting because we really don't do a good job at it. And Jesus says this. And when you fast again, he's assumed that we will. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. I mean, they put on sackcloth, they put ashes, they get this gloomy look. They want everybody to know that they're fasting. And when people see them, they say, oh, they're fasting, they're so spiritual. They're so spiritual. No, they're hypocritical because they cared nothing about a hunger for God. They cared nothing about a brokenness and contrite spirit. They cared nothing about joining with God's plan of things. It's all about them. It's all about how they look. And so Jesus goes on. He says, their fasting may be seen by others, but truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but that your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There are all kinds of fasting that goes on in our life. There's intermittent fasting. If you ever do intermittent fasting, I have, I've tried it intermittent fasting. Then there's media fasting today. A lot of people are into this, oh, I'm having a media fast. And what do they do? They post it all over social media that they're fasting. I'm like, when does it start? And so it's the media fast. And then a lot of people talk about a biblical fast. Why I want to fast? Well, I want to fast because I, I, I need God's answer for something in my life. And again, it could be hypocritical. And fasting can become very hypocritical when it's about me. But fasting is always about the hunger for God. I'm fasting. Why? Because, Father, I need you more. I'm fasting because I need dependence on you. I'm fasting because I need to repent of this area in my life. I'm fasting because there's a stronghold that I can't get out of. I'm fasting because I am walking in uncertainty, and I need you. The whole heart of fasting is about Jesus. Intermittent fasting is for me, so I look better. Media fasting is so I can get all the clutter out of my mind so I can think straighter. And much of our biblical fasting is about doing something right that God will reward me for instead of hungering for him. So, here's the conflict. In Matthew chapter five, he says, let your light shine so others will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Three times here, Jesus says, do not do these and seen before men. And we're like, okay, is there a conflict here? On one hand, we're to let our light shine. The other hand, we're not to let anybody see our good works. How do we reconcile the two? Let me put it this way. We are to shine when we are tempted to hide. And we are to hide when we are tempted to shine. There's sometimes we don't want to shine because we're fearful of what people might think and that's when we need to shine. Sometimes we want to shine because we want people to think a certain way about us and we need to hide. And when we keep those perspectives right, then we can know when to shine and when not to shine. But the question is this, so what? So what does all this mean for me? Okay, we've talked about hypocrisy. I see I'm a hypocrite. I see all the areas where I fail. Man, what is the hope in this message? Let me give you three things. Number one, be real. Be real. Don't pretend to be something you're not. You know, one of the most refreshing things is when people are real I met with a brother this past week as we're going through a book together. And as we're reading together, he just looked at me. He said, Phil, I'm not there. Man, when it comes to this issue in my life, my life's a mess. And I told him, brother, that's the first place to start. Be real. This is who you are. Don't pretend. And by the way, who are you pretending? You're pretending around church folks to be something? Let me just tell you, church folks are not particularly known to be cool. And it's insane. You're going to pretend around people to be something you're not when your heavenly father sees exactly what you are? We need to be real. We need to be in a community of people where we can be gut-wrenchingly honest. Some of you are dealing with some addictions that you're trying to justify or you're trying to bury, and the Holy Spirit's calling you to be real with it. Some of you are dealing with pornography, and you're convincing yourself you don't have a problem. Be real. Some of you are struggling with lust. Some of you are struggling with anger. Some of you are struggling with unforgiveness. Some of you are struggling with covetousness. And what do we do? We pretend we're not. And all along, God is saying, I see it. You see it. Quit pretending. We're in a community of faith followers where we should be real with one another. Unless that person has a sin of gossip. No, I'm just kidding. But we should be real. And I'm gonna tell you, that's the first place to start because you'll never deal with the issues and the failures of your life apart from reality. Be real. Here's the second thing choose your audience carefully. Who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to please? A lot of times we're trying to please ourselves. A lot of times we're trying to please our spouses or our kids or our neighbors or people around us. And there's only one audience that we should pursue. We are to please him. When we get to chapter seven, we're gonna see the devastating effect of hypocrites who refuse to see who they really are. And they stand before the Lord one day and he says, mm, never knew you. The most fearful thing they will ever hear in all of their existence. Who are you trying to please? With every aspect of your life, with every prayer, with every generosity, with every fasting, with everything you do, the heart is to please him. I go to work today, Lord, because I want to please you. Father, I'm walking in discipline today because I want to please you. Father, I'm fighting this temptation. I'm surrendering to you because I want to please you. And one man said, the reason we fall into temptation is because we, at at that moment, we forget God. C.S. Lewis was right. It's about pleasing him in all things. So be real. Choose your audience carefully, and I love this one. Practice the presence of God daily. Why is that important, believer? Listen, believer, positionally, you are perfect. Positionally, he loves you positionally, he will never condemn you. He will never leave you. Practically, we have our weaknesses, but when I walk and practice the presence of God, I know that my heavenly father loves me. There's nothing I have to do to earn it. It's already there because of his son. And I can walk every single day with the absolute assurance that I am his and he is mine. So believer, listen to me. Hypocrisy is real. It's a deal that we all have to struggle with. Jesus warns us in that. But let the Spirit of God deal with your hearts even now in walking in religious righteousness without hypocrisy. If you're not a believer here today, my friend, listen to me. The answer that you hear today is Jesus. It's only Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sin. He's the only one that can make you perfect before a holy God. He's the only one who can give you eternal life. Don't try. Surrender. And as you do that, you will see the changes that the Holy Spirit will bring to make you new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for this passage. It was almost a pointless one. But Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the words that were shared and read and understood and you would work those deeply within our hearts. And Father, we would yield to you today. Thank you, Father, for this faith family. Thank you for this community of believers who love one another. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to do life together, that we can be open and honest and with our struggles and we can ask for prayer and support and walking away, Father, that you desire us to walk. Thank you for our holiday weekend that many of us have friends and family in town. We pray that you would bless our time and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash steps Till next time.